My name is Crystal Heishman. I am the Director of Infection Prevention down at Jewish and Heart. I also have system oversight for infection prevention for disinfection, sterilization, and facilities. So we do all the construction, renovation, air management, water plans, um, things like that. And then I also have system vascular access. Um, so if you ever have an issue, you can always call me on that as well. Today we're going to um, do an intro to infection prevention. Um, it is a very broad scope of things that infection prevention touches, basically anything and everything we do touch. Um, and owed to that, I had to cut out like 30 slides, or we'd be here all day. <laughs> so our objectives for today, um, we're going to identify methods to prevent infectious disease transmission. We're going to implement, implement device-related infection prevention strategies for Claudia and Clebsy. And then we'll be able to discuss the appropriate testing for CEDA. And that's probably going to be our biggest argument today um, that you'll hear. A lot of times CDF um, testing gets a lot of response. So we'll start off being fun. Um, I need it from running down the street. So this is one of my favorite uh, memes that I did. Because um, everybody has a different idea of what infection prevention does. From being the, the hand hygiene police to, you know, a lot of us are nurses. Some of us are um, MPHs, some microbiologists. Um, what I feel like I do is sit under a mound of paperwork um, daily and then what I actually do is this is actually a picture from me running around this building with a poop emoji costumes on for um, <laughs> awareness. Um, I actually have some of our pharmacists in this costume as well and I have pictures for uh, blackmail later. Um, so infection prevention this is meant to look messy because like I said we touch just about everything we have to, we're like a master of our, uh, what is it? Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. Master of some. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we have to know disease, uh, infectious disease pathophysiology, transmission. We have to know engineering, sterile processing, um, environment of care. There's just a lot of different things. You have to know uh, antimicrobial stewardship. You can imagine it. We have to, to know it. Um, one of the things, our main purpose in life for infection prevention is breaking the chain of transmission. So it's a giant circle, what goes in, what comes out, where it lives. Um, so for example, infection or your reservoirs, where it lives. So it can live in you, on you, around you. Ticks, mosquitoes, um, you might see a West Nile here or there. You might see um, Heartland or occasionally a Rocky Mountain spotted fever down here. Um, it can live in water, so like if you have a pseudomonas outbreak, you know, we immediately look to water and soil or stenotrophomonas, we'll look for water or um, um, soil, those kind of things. Food, um, and then your surfaces. So I love that some of you guys are eating because I'm like the George Carlin of infection prevention. Um, <clears throat> and I love shock value. So some things live on surfaces for a very long time. So C. diff, for instance, can live dormant for three to six months or longer on a surface and then reactivate itself once it comes in contact with a great host. And then it just sits there and it lives. Um, and if you ever walk into a room and somebody loves you, especially those little old ladies, especially once you, you get past the trauma part and you get into some um, geriatrics, they like to give gifts. Um, just remember that when you're taking their pieces of chocolate, um, what could be living with them? Um, <laughs> true story, don't eat in those rooms. Um, portal of exit, how it comes out, where it goes, so eyes, ears, um, mouth, top, bottom, 
how it comes out. Um, blood and body fluids, through your skin, things like that, the modes of transmission, um, how it moves around. So it can move on surfaces. Um, if you're moving like IV poles and especially ultrasounds back and forth, so if you're a user of ultrasound, um, we'll talk about surface disinfection in just a little bit. Um, I cannot tell you the number of times I've, I've found an ultrasound that had just been used um, to play the central line or to do an injection and it has gel all over it and other things. So make sure we clean our, our things off because it can move. And then of course, even your coats. There's lots of studies on um, textiles and how that moves, stethoscopes, cell phones. Um, I actually did a 70 page uh, dissertation on uh, cell phones and transmissibility. Um, if you ever want a research project, there's not a whole lot out there. Um, it's all like anecdotal and little tiny studies. Uh, but there's a lot of information out there on how that is a mode of transmission, and that's why we have screen wipes now, um, because that is a source of transmission. And then, of course, our hands. That's a, a big uh, movement. Portal of entry. Everybody likes touching their face. You'll notice, even with masks on, people are like fiddling and touching the front part, which is your contaminated part, and they'll rub their eyes, rub their nose, play with their ears, play with their hair. I'll probably touch my hair 20 times before the end of this. Um, and it's just something we do subconsciously. No one actually realizes it, so you don't actually think about it as you're doing it. Um, and then, of course, our hosts or our patients. Um, some people are more susceptible to disease than others. So our immunocompromised folks, so your bone marrow transplant, um, solid organ transplant, your rheumatological diseases. So a lot of them are on immunosuppressants. Um, the odor they are, burns. Um, I've gotten some crazy calls from burn before. Uh, where you know you're losing your first line of defense. And so I remember one time I got a call and they're like, this person is growing mold, what do I do? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> um, I was like, but let me look up for you. So we do have a lot of patients that are susceptible to things that we wouldn't be susceptible to necessarily. And then of course your infectious agents, where it's your bacteria, your viruses, your fungi, and things like that. Um, I did have to take out the section on um, our decolonization protocol, so I'll go over that now um, before we get started. So one of the things we do to help reduce our, um, our bacteria, especially our gram positives, is we do universal decolonization. So that process is we do um, alcohol nasal swab twice daily um, while they're inpatient, and then we also do our CHG bathing. And that helps to reduce that bacterial burden and help decolonize um, from MSSA, MRSA, things like that. Does not really have that much of an effect on our gram negatives, but it does help with the gram positives. So infection prevention control and hospital epidemiology, we do all the above. So when we um, bring forth things, it's usually implementation um, science, so things that have research behind it, best practices, um, they're in the guidelines, we bring those forward. Um, try to give the why to it as well, because no one likes to be told you're just gonna do this just to do it, right? So we try to bring the why behind it. We also, when we implement things, we look at our vertical strategies versus our horizontal um, strategies. So vertical is singular, so we're looking at a specific thing. And then the vertical is the encompassing for um, multiple. And then we're also constantly looking for trends. So I didn't, I had to take out the epi curve too. We'll put that in another slide set later on in the lecture series. Um, so we, we're always looking at trends. So daily, we're like, okay, 
like right now I'm like, okay, this employee's caught out with COVID, this employee's caught with COVID, I have a COVID over here, COVID over there. Um, do they connect? So we're always looking to see if the dots are being connected. If you ever run into something and you have a concern, I don't know how many times Audrey's called me and said, hey, we just had another steno pop up. Um, can you take a look at this? Do we have any more um, that I haven't seen? Or I'll call her and I'll say, hey, Canada Oris in the house. And she's like, oh man. Um, so we're always looking at those trends. What's really important, and this has gotten a lot of controversy in the past, um, especially here. So we were really big on VAP back in the day. Um, I actually had a team of researchers from ID. We went around every single day. We looked at every single ICU patient that was on a vent. We looked at their chest x-ray, tried to make a determination if they had VAP. It was, it was huge when I first started here. Um, so there's a difference between surveillance and clinical. So what infection prevention does is we do more of a, pop, a public health surveillance. So we're looking at a group of folks, right? Um, why definitions are being used, we have to sometimes um, fight the bullet and say, okay, this is, it is what it is because we can't get out of it. Um, even though we know clinically that this may not be the cause. Um, it looks at trends and processes, baselines and reporting. <coughs> Overall, we want to improve our outcomes. Whereas clinical is very individualized, hopefully it's individualized. I mean, we get our, our normal um, groupings of diseases and things like that, but we have narrow definitions so we're looking clinically, diagnosis, um, treatment options and decisions, but all in all, we always want to look for the improved outcomes. And so going on with those vertical versus horizontal interventions, so we have CAUTI, CLABSI, -E, these are some of the big things we look at, VAE or VAP. Multi-drug resistant organisms. And C. difficile. Let's make sure that's spelled right for a second. No. Um, and then our horizontal interventions. So hand hygiene and PPE, we're going to talk about that ad nauseum. Um, equipment cleaning and disinfection. Our environmental cleaning and our antimicrobial stewardship. Um, and as we go along, we're also going to break this down into the basics of infection prevention. So this is where we start. This is the why. This is what we do because overall, one, we want to improve outcomes. Two, we want to prevent transmission and we want to make everyone healthy as we can. Um, so our six basics of infection prevention center around hygiene, um, personal protective equipment, uh, respiratory hygiene, cough etiquette, injection and sharp safety, cleaning and disinfection, and vaccination. So starting off with hygiene. So we look at not just hand hygiene, or hand hygiene, which is you know the single most important way to prevent the spread of infection. Um, everyone here will tell me that they, they wash their hands 100% of the time at the right time. I will tell you that I like your positivity. Um, so that, that's one thing, because sometimes we get so involved in our routines that we forget. Not because we're, we have ill intent or anything like that, we just, we, we get involved, we, we forget. Um, you run in, you go to grab something, or you'll run in and you'll say, I'm just going to assess this patient real quick, I'm just going to talk to them, with no intention of ever touching them, and then for some reason, next thing you know, we're leaning against the counter or we're touching the patient. So. One, we've forgotten to wash our hands going in. Two, um, maybe you get caught up quickly. Maybe there's a code. Um, so, you know, sometimes it, it's not the top priority. So our, our goal is to get everybody hardwired back to where hand hygiene is, is very compulsive. It's something that you do walking in, walking out between clean and dirty. 
Um, and then also before you put on gloves. Uh, a lot of folks like to substitute gloves for hand hygiene or hand hygiene for gloves. Um, but if you look at it this way, so if we're putting on a pair of gloves, which is meant to help protect us from blood and body fluid, but if someone didn't wash their hands first, put their hands in the glove box, put those lovely gloves on, um, and then when they took them off, they washed their hands, right? Because most people, that's, that's automatically what they do. Um, but if you think about it, they didn't wash their hands, put their hands in the glove box, then the next person who walks in is also going to pick up whatever was left behind on those gloves. And one of the big things, I was going to put the meme in here and I took it out, um, that you'll see. There's, there's the memes all over the internet talking about, um, you know, how somebody walks into an MRSA room, you know, and it shows the Fight Club with Brian Pitt. Um, and then it says, you know, how they walk in the room with one bed bug. Um, and it looks like they're getting ready to go to decon in the ER. Um, or deal with the hazmat situation because they are all gown and glove. The difference is we can see the critters that crawl, but we can't see the microscopic ones. So they sometimes don't have as much um, emphasis or importance um, because we can't see them. Um, also, not only is hand hygiene, but also bathing. So making sure the patients are bathed, minimal soap and water. Um, right now with our CHG bathing um, decolonization protocol, so anybody who is admitted to an ICU should be getting daily baths. Uh, anyone with CHG, anyone who has a Lyme, and then also any post-operative patients. So we expanded that last, I think it was last year or the year before, um, to include that group. So not everyone um, requires a CHG bath for protocol, but it, it does hit the majority of our patients, and then of course those without with a CHD allergy, then they would just use soap and water or antibacterial. Um, and then routine oral care. So, so for instance, um, ventilated patients should have key four hours, but even non-ventilated patients should really have frequent oral care. Um, something I did learn this past week, I'll pass this on to you, because I don't think I ever read the um, Tuvet um, package. I don't think so. About in the 20 something years I've been a nurse. Um, on the front of the tooth that package, just for your knowledge, it does say that if the patient has cognitive decline and they can't um, follow directions, you should use a bite block with those. Did anybody here know that? I had absolutely no clue until this past week. So now I'm sharing the words. Um, but making sure we have routine oral care because even if they don't have a ventilator, they can still get a pneumonia. And then our personal protective equipment. And of course, this is very informal, so if anybody has any questions as we go along or, or wants to bring anything up, please feel free. Um, so our personal protective equipment, gowns, masks, eye protection gloves, we have other things. We have boot covers, things like that. Um, fun fact about this slide is that the PPE is listed in the order it should be put on. On the back of your isolation signs, um, it does list the order they should be put on and then the order they should also be removed. Um, so we wanna make sure that we're using these whenever there's any risk of blood or body fluids, splash sprays. Um, I have stories for days on gross things that happen without PPE on. Um, even to the point where I brought my own shoes to work one too many bedpan steps in or, or blood spurts. Um, and then making sure we use those. So the difference between standard and transmission-based precautions, we're gonna get into that because these are super important. So standard precautions is to protect you. 
Um, that is when there's the risk of the splash, sprays, things like that. If you've ever been in front of a trach, you know what they like to do. You do not want to stand in front of them when they're hawking a loogie at you um, without some sort of PPE on. Um, also, if you're doing any uh, invasive procedures, you know you'll want to wear your PPE. Um, and then transmission-based precautions is for everyone else. That's when those standard precautions alone are not going to suffice. So not only does the transmission-based precautions protect you, but it also protects our patients and protects our patients from each other in the environment. Um, so these recommendations for our transmission-based precautions, they come from multiple societies like IDSA, SHEA, um, APIC, and AORN. So a lot of these are listed up here so you can see um, what the acronym stands for. Excuse me. CDC, um, we also pull things out of the FDA, HSPA, people like that. Um, the signs can vary by facility, so if you travel to more than just uh, you do a hospital, um, say you go to Frazier, their signs look a little different, but they all have the same message. And then once again, you'll, I'll repeat this because it takes seven times um, of repetition for something to be committed into memory. So hand hygiene is the single most uh, important practice to, to reduce the transmission of infectious agents. So. So signs within our institutions are posted outside the rooms. At Frazier and Mary Elizabeth, they're listed on the outside of the door. And then around through here, um, here are Jewish Heart, they're all listed, they're all put on the door. Um, anyone can initiate precautions. I will tell you that the majority of our isolation or transmission-based precautions are automated um, through microbiology. As soon as a specific organism comes across, it'll generate that automatic um, isolation order. Um, the one thing that you'll notice the most um, is that if you order an AFB, it's going to automatically put someone in airborne precautions. So if TB is not truly on your differential <coughs> and you're just ordering it as part of your order set, it would um, be very helpful if you just put this patient's not suspected for TB, it's just part of your workup. Um, then we can take that isolation order right back down without having to track down someone. Um, we get calls on that all the time. UofL, this hospital has a ton of uh, airborne isolation rooms. Jewish has like four. So somebody's getting airborne, they're really gonna need airborne. Um, and then consult infection prevention to discontinue. We have infection preventionists at every facility. Um, plus we have our system infection preventionists. If you go to the intranet, um, all of our information is listed there. And I'll also provide my information at the end of the slide. So even if you don't know who to contact, you can contact me and I will get a hold of them. Not the ID fellows. They won't be able to help you. Yeah. <coughs> don't know about I have a question on that actually. Because we get eyes, I feel like a lot by nurses and techs, like, oh, this patient's in isolation. Why are they in isolation? Can we take the isolation off? Is it appropriate for us to take it off or should we direct them? Um, it depends. So if they have an algorithm, yes. So like C diff, um, the algorithm to discontinue isolation for that is 48 hours after effective therapy and resolution of symptoms, boom, they can come out. Um, things like CRE is 18 months from their last positive. And that's usually, they get tired of them being in isolation. And they're like, oh, but, you know, it was so long ago, but it, the health department, if they're out before that 18 months, at some point, if they have like a carbapenemase producer, we're gonna be swabbing patients if we take them out of isolation. Um, COVID, so that's 14 days um, after they're positive, if they're inpatient, plus resolution of symptoms or a decrease. So those kind of things, yes, you can take them out all day long. Um, if you determine TB is not in that differential and you order an AFB and the PCR is negative, take them out. 
Um, otherwise, it's always good to, to just call the infection, have them call the infection prevention department, okay. just kind of double check so there's not a, a crossover there. Um, and then also if you look, and I don't have the physician view on, on my Cerner, but if you look under diagnosis and problems, anytime someone has um, something that's a multi-drug resistant organism, the infection preventionist for that facility will put that into the diagnosis and problem list and then they'll put a note on it talking about isolation or, or what they had positive, if that helps. Um, and then based on the type of organism or the illness or the issue, we'll put them in one of our, our different isolations. Yes? So do we not do, <coughs> sorry, do we not do um, precautions for a history of MRSA we do not. That went away, I think, in 2016. Um, I remember I was very uh, weary about taking that away. I was panicking a little bit. Um, but a lot of the other academic medical centers had already done studies on that. Um, so we did take it away. We did point prevalence um, to see if there was a change. There was not. Um, we, actually, we actually, I think we wrote that up um, and had that published. But there was no change. Community rate didn't change. Our internal rate didn't. Hand hygiene stayed the same. Now, of course, you're going to see transmission when your hand hygiene rates fluctuate. Um, but yeah, we haven't isolated, I think, since 2016. VRE is not isolated either. Um, yes? Your confusion may stem in part, if you have any, that is from the fact that VA still does isolate with that. Mm -hmm. right. Everything happens more slowly. <laughs> Although they got secure a cath first. I'm so jealous. Because I wanted to draw that. And they'll pet scan anyone. But other than that, <laughs> they're kind of behind the curve. Um, MRSA is still a life sentence of isolation in some places. And some only isolate if they're currently infected, even though you can shed while you're colonized. Um, so we just said, you know what, let's do good hand hygiene. Let's practice what we know to do. Um, as long as there's no change, then you don't need to isolate. Um, so for contact precautions, gowns and gloves. Um, of course, if there's splash or spray wrists, you're gonna put eye protection on, they get a private room. Um, common for that is your CREs, just your regular, so your regular resistance, so what is it, your speak? Organism, serratia, um, proteus, uh, E. coli, enterobacter, citrobacter, Clebsiella, ooh, I win. Um, and then your multi-drug resistant pseudomonases and acinetobacters. Um, scabies goes into contact. No one likes scabies. Um, Norwegian scabies goes into super contact. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that, that one moves fast. If you see something that looks like an anthill, it's Norwegian scabies. Um, don't wait, don't wait for it to spread. Um, draining wounds that cannot be contained, you can also put into contact. That was the worst outbreak. It started off as one and went to 300. Um, so then we have our contact enteric precautions, and those are your spores. Um, so hepatitis A, norovirus, C. diff, your diarrheal illnesses. <coughs> Excuse me. The big difference between the two of these is, is that the contact enteric, you, you use soap and water to wash your hands, and you're going to use bleach to clean your surfaces. And then down here at the bottom, you'll notice the ESBL and AMPC. Um, I'm just giving you a little guidance, require contact isolation for 12 months from their last positive, whereas CRE is 18 months. And we're going to talk about that a little more in just a second. Yes. Um, 
IDSA, uh, I think, just narrowed their list of entity producers. Do so now we we only closely monitor the ones that are inducible MC producers because they're the ones that might have susceptibilities that then turn out in practice to not really match the clinical right. experience. Um, are we still isolating all the MC producers, initiative <coughs> and yes. inducible? So much like the VA, we have to wait for public health to catch up. Um, and actually, HICPAC right now um, and the CDC, they are actually getting ready to revise all the isolation guidelines. Um, so waiting to see what that's gonna look like. I was in on one of their meetings listening in um, a week or two ago. It was very interesting because it sounds like it's getting ready to get confusing. Um, <laughs> more confusing than it is now. So yes, AMPCs are still there. Yes. Quick question. So the 18 month isolation period, obviously we hopefully don't have a patient that is admitted for that long, but how do you go about enforcing that outpatient or after they leave fusion? Right. I mean, I know someone said like history of MRSA can be a diagnosis or something, but do, do you tell them to bring it up? We do, we tell them to bring it up if they get uh, readmitted especially. So outside of here, we don't have any control over that. But once they get readmitted, so when we put that thing in the, uh, or we put the, the diagnosis in the diagnosis and problem list, we also go into their infectious disease history and we'll mark what they have. And then we'll also mark what kind of isolation they need. So what happens is, is when they get readmitted, it generates an automatic isolation order. And then it also generates an infection control consult. Um, sometimes we don't get those, but for the most part, we, we know that they're back. <coughs> Excuse me. Gotcha. All right, so containment precautions is contact on steroids. And it's exactly the same, so gown and gloves, private room. The big difference with this is, is we reserve this for our emerging pathogens. Um, our, well, not all emerging pathogens, if it's by contact with you. Candida auris, um, which is something you've probably heard about recently. It's multi-drug resistant fungi that gets in, once it gets in the environment, it spreads like wildfire. It's hard to get out, it can colonize. We used to tell folks within 24 hours their environment was colonized with whatever bacteria they came in on. Um, but uh, Candida auris, I think the studies and the literature that's been coming out can colonize within six to eight hours. It can move around the room, you can already walk it out to the next person. Um, so we save that for Canada Auris, we save it for our carbapenemase um, producing organisms. So um, mechanisms of resistance, you may recognize your CREs is from prolonged exposure, life will find a way, Jurassic Park, um, they, they gain that resistance, whereas our CPOs, um, that gene can jump. It doesn't stay by itself, it doesn't, like if it starts off in a coli in the blood, next thing you know it's an eclipsiella in the urine. And then, oh, we've got a pseudomonas in the lungs. It'll keep moving. Um, so we put those in containment precautions. Um, it does say up here, for those we do 18 months from the last positive, the Canada ORS one will change to indefinite. Um, the health department said we're going indefinite because we don't have the literature yet. <coughs> um, for these patients, if they're being moved to another facility or if they're being moved in-house, then we require notification from someone, usually, um, case management, nursing, physicians, um, just to let us know they're moving so we can notify the next person because we don't want to spread this. Um, this also gets pan-resistant organisms. Um, we once had an outbreak of pan-resistant um, acinetobacter um, in a very small unit in this building. 
Um, and when we traced back, we had to lock the unit um, and, and do surveillance. But what we found out is it was coming off the rail in the hallway. Uh, physical therapy was using um, that as a stabilizer when they were walking patients, but then no one was thinking to, to wipe down the surface and that's how it ended up spreading. So we do have transmission through those kind of things. Um, so for containment precautions, the big thing with them is they're gonna have dedicated equipment. If we have staff for it, they'll get dedicated staff. And then also their um, equipment gets cleaned twice if it has to be moved between patients. So once before it leaves the room and once after it leaves the room, if they're on a ventilator, that ventilator will be cleaned three times by RT. That's their process. Um, we increase the high touch surface cleaning to um, twice a day um, by nursing and twice a day by EBS to keep that bacterial burden down. And then depending on whatever organism it is, um, we'll want to make sure that we use the appropriate cleaner for it. So whether it be bleach, alcohol, usually the, the gray tops aren't used on these, any of these organisms um, because they just don't work. All right, droplet precautions. I'm gonna speed up just a little bit. So droplet precautions, that's gonna be all your viral illnesses for the most part. Um, the one we get the most um, confused looks about is rhinovirus. There's, there's a bazillion strains of rhinovirus. If they're admitted to the hospital, um, they're sick. They have a strain that needs to be isolated. Um, and <coughs> you know these are spread through larger droplets. They usually say six to eight feet. We've seen them spread 10 to 12 feet. Um, through coughing, sneezing, talking, things like that, um, procedures involving the respiratory tract. Um, my favorite <coughs> argument this week is perp trachs. Um, has everybody here done a perp trach or seen one? Percutaneous trach? Right there. All right. So what I've noticed lately is that we're not using any PPE during perp trachs. And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm not doing the procedure. I'm just standing here watching it right standing here watching it right over uh, where they're getting ready to make an incision um, so even when we do trait care and, and I'll get into this more in BAP in a second um, when we do trait care it's sterile so if I see folks not using, using PPE or using regular gloves during any kind of procedure I'll stop them and I'll say hey you know we want this to be as sterile as we can possibly get even if we don't consider the site sterile because we can still shove things into a sterile area or make them sick. So droplet requires a surgical uh, mask and eye protection. And then airborne precautions, that's your TV. Um, chicken pox, disseminated shingles, things like that. You'll see disseminated shingles from time to time on BMT here or in some of your solid organ transplants who are severely immunosuppressed or some of your um, HIV patients. Um, and this could occur through talking, um, sneezing, similar to droplet. These are very small particles. They kind of float in the air and they can go further distances. There was a lot of um, conversation during COVID, like is it droplet, is it airborne? Um, it was a great debate and it depends on what we're doing with it. And then there's some organisms that while they're not contact, they're not droplet, they're not anything until they're um, impacted in another way. So for instance, um, recently, we had a surgical case where the organism, there's no precautions for it because it's not spread person to person. <coughs> but when you aerosolize it during a surgical procedure, it becomes very infectious. And I think the infectious dose on this particular organism was like five um, to create 
you know, a very significant infection. So we also look at that, like how it's transmitted is also um, depending on what you're doing with the organism at that point or how it's being um, manipulated. Yes? You mentioned if you order an AFB that the person goes in airborne by default. If varicella zoster encephalitis is in the differential, does that person also go into airborne? They by should, but that will, um, that may not necessarily generate an airborne order, so it'd have to be a physical order. Like you'd have to go in and type in airborne and then put in the comments why. And then we would also get a consult. Um, but yes, if it's in the differential, it should go into airborne. Um, so these folks require a negative pressure room, N95 or a PAPR. And if the negative pressure room isn't available, then contact your infection preventionist and they'll work on either getting with engineering for a HEPA filter or, or making sure that, that, that you and the patient are safe. Um, some units are positive pressure, so you wouldn't keep anything airborne on a positive pressure uh, unit because what it does is it pushes everything out of that room into the hallway. So we would move them at that point. Yeah. Well, okay, for droplet and for airborne, I feel like people will automatically continue wearing gloves and gowns, but it's not on here. Correct. So really for TB, you only have to wear the N95 and eye protection because really you just worry about these. You don't have to have eye protection according to the CDC. Uh -huh. But it's also part of standard precaution. So if somebody has something that's considered droplet, like rhinovirus, and they're coughing and hacking all over the place, right. I'm going to put a gown and gloves on because that is going to be around their environment and it's going to get all over me and I don't want it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so you have to, it's part of standard, but it's also part of the transmission base. So if CDC says you have to have this, but most of us feel more comfortable, right. you know, protecting the rest of us. And some things will cross. Some will be contact and droplet, depending on, on what's going on with them. Uh, another question is, for example, you have a patient that was examined by several physicians, and eventually someone thought about asking some questions, and the patient may potentially have TB. So he was in the AED, exposed to other patients. So mm -hmm. then what do we do with the people that are near the patient, and how do we manage? Right, so we would wait to see if they came up positive first. A lot of times that creates a lot of panic if we're like, oh no, we think they have TB. So we wait for that positive, and then we see how much time they spent around the person um, and the length of contact, like how close were they, how long did they spend. So the CDC, um, and there's nothing really written, but I've worked with them several times. We had, especially the quarantine center in Michigan, because um, we had one on an airplane for 14 hours. Yeah. Um, so they usually consider um, exposure, like significant exposure to be six to eight hours. So we'll do rings of people. So we'll say, okay, let us know how long you accumulated time. Because we've had people who've been inpatient for two weeks and we think they have lung cancer and they might still have lung cancer, but now we also know that they have TB. So then we look and say, okay, what's our length of exposure? And as you get into the hours, that's when we start considering it a true exposure. If you're just running in and out and you've spent three minutes with them in the last two days, we wouldn't consider that exposure. But if you know, you're with them 12 hours, they're on the call at every five seconds, or you're doing a significant procedure with them, like a bronch, that's gonna be considered an exposure. All right, special precautions. Everybody knows the sign, right? We've all lived through COVID. We're living through COVID still, the new, um, the new variant. Right now we're in ARIS or EG um, is our current circulating. They've had the new one come out. It has 30 mutations on it. It isn't moving too fast, so hopefully that 30 mutations will keep it from moving fast or moving at all. 
Um, so we have COVID that goes into our special precautions, our um, friend Ebola. Um, Mayor's just made its way back over in the Middle East and said, hello, did you forget me? Um, currently avian influenza, they're watching it. So anybody who goes in the ICU um, that we do an RVP on that comes positive with the flu, we send it to the state for testing to make sure it, it's not an avian influenza hiding in the background. Um, and then other novel and emerging pathogens because we can manipulate the sign to say what we need it to say. And we can um, do one-on-one -on -one training with folks as we do it. Um, so our current um, precautions is N95 or PAPR, um, washing hands, gowns, gloves, um, and then making sure that we have them in a private room. If we're going to do an aerosolizing procedure, it's preferred that they go into a negative air room, but it's not um, required. And then of course, um, we typically don't do any kind of animal therapy with any of our isolation because there is literature showing the back and forth between those. Um, between the organisms. Three on precautions. We're almost done with the precautions, and I really got to speed up. I told you I had to cut off a ton of slides. Um, so pre on precautions, that's when we are, we are suspecting that somebody has CJD or uh, maybe FFS. I, um, I've never really seen the rest of them. I have seen a fatal uh, familial insomnia several years ago and then um, multiple CJDs. So if, for, if a prion disease comes into your differential, please notify the lab that you're getting ready to do a lumbar puncture. Make sure that the labs are labeled as CJD biohazardous so they know because they have to take special precautions. Not necessarily with the fluids themselves, but with their instrumentation, because um, we don't want to ruin the lab's instrumentation because you know capital. Um, we want to make sure they can keep using it. And then also, any kind of neural fluid you want to make sure that, that they're doing the appropriate things with. Um, your tests for that are the 1433, the, the tau, the T-tau, and the RT-quick. Um, there are no precautions in general. It's when you're doing the lumbar puncture. Um, and then also um, lab, when they get that, they can process it normally because they use it. Um, I'm turning that down seven times, I'm telling you. Um, and then also, anytime we're getting ready to do a procedure, the procedural area needs to be notified because we're going to use disposable equipment. If we do, if the patient does come back with CJD and we've used equipment on them in surgery um, that is not disposable, we have to incinerate it. Um, when was it? Six, seven years ago, these precautions came about because we had to throw five bronchoscopes away. Um, and then, of course, we don't want to have to chase down, you know, folks and have to tell them, I'm so sorry, there's a chance you might have been exposed to something that, that can't be cured. Um, so we make sure that we try to get ahead of it. Brain biopsies are always done with um, disposable equipment, and then, of course, if we're doing any other ones. Here's your panic precautions. This came from our good friends here at UofL because of BMT. Um, it is in our transmission-based precautions across the system. Um, they're used to seeing protectives, so there's a lot of questions about that. So we're actually looking at this one right now. So neutropenic is basically they have no immune system, and there's certain things we don't want to do. We don't want to bring anything with soil on it to them because that is a big harbor of um, bacteria. Um, so no fresh flowers or plants. They can have fresh vegetables and fruits. They just can't have the soil on it, so it has to be washed thoroughly. And then um, the patients wear the mask outside of the room. We wear the mask inside the room. It's a, it's a very protective. 
And then don't forget your BBE. You never know what's gonna happen. My favorite was um, we were spiking blood and the person with me was in a hurry and it looked like a scene out of um, Carrie or The Shining or something. Where did I go? All right, so it is respiratory season right now. We've already talked about that. COVID is in full swing again. Um, it's mostly, well, I see multiple alerts a day currently and our numbers are going up just a smidgen. We also see, I've seen a couple of flus. Uh, CDC just sent out an alert this week on RSV in the Southeast that's kicked up. Um, what else we have going around? I think we have adenovirus still going around. And then some sort of rhinovirus is going around right now because everybody's sick and they're like, I'm not testing positive for anything. Um, it's that communicable allergies, you know, the ones that start with patient one or person one, and then three days later, the second person's like, my allergies are acting up, and then it just keeps spreading. Um, you know that thing we give that Z pack for? Just kidding. Um, so respiratory, the biggest thing is, is that you want to keep it contained. So if you were having allergies, wear a mask. Keep it contained yourself, don't share. Dispose of used tissues in the trash. And then if you're going to cough, please don't cough in your hand. Um, cough in your elbow. Cough in a tissue. Wash your hands afterwards and make sure we're using good hand hygiene. Um, injection sharp safety. So big thing here is one needle, one syringe, one patient, one time. Do not reuse. Um, administer topical spray or drops in a manner to prevent cross-contamination. You might notice there's a certain group that runs around with a giant bag full of samples and goodies. Make sure that they are not expired. Um, use sharp safety products and dispose in puncture resistant container. Um, do not remove needles from the sharps containers. And then per OSHA guidelines, they always say this is joint commission, but if really OSHA, do not drink, eat, or anything else around blood or body fluids, um, or there's a possibility of exposure. So most people will say, well, I need my drink right here. And one day I was on the floor and they're like, they picked up the totally wrong drink and drank somebody else's. I'm like, that's kind of gross. Um, so make sure that you know you keep those separated. Cleaning and disinfection. Um, infectious medical waste and other potentially infectious materials need to go into a biohazard bag. Labs go into biohazard bags for the same reason. Um, make sure that if you're sending specimens off that they are closed appropriately um, before they're put in the bag. Um, if there's a chance that it could be very communicable, do not tube it. Um, cleaning versus disinfection, a lot of folks get this one confused. So cleaning is the actual um, act of removing um, dirt and debris. Disinfection is when we're actually starting to kill those organisms. So two totally different processes. Um, wipe down reusable equipment between uses. We talked about seeing the ultrasound machines um, previously. Um, and then do not reuse disposable equipment. Um, you can't really see it in that picture, um, but those are out of a suture, well, you usually see the ones out of the suture kit people are leaving around and using it later. Um, you can tell it's disposable because it usually says Pakistan on it. And then also the, the tray it comes in, it'll say single use. So we talked about how surfaces can act as fomites, how things can spread. So we've used this picture for a very long time. It was actually a collaborative um, project between us and Barnes Jewish in St. Louis. This is from way back before I even I started um, in infection prevention. Um, so this is after the, the patient left all the places in the room where they found VRE. 
um, so you can see how much it spreads. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure we keep those um, surface levels, those burdens on the surfaces low so we're not spreading it between patients. Cleaning and disinfections, we have a ton of products to use. You'll see more than this sometimes depending on the day. Um, the purple ones that we have currently are two minute alcohol wipes. We also have the gray quaternary ammoniums. Um, those are three minutes. Bleach is the orange, they're four minutes. That means the surface has to remain wet for at least four minutes for it to work. We also have our little hand um, wipes and we also have our PDI um, easy screens or our easy screen wipes that are up there. Um, and those are alcohol based as well to clean cell phones because we know what you're doing in the bathroom. Um, so reusable critical instrument, if you do a bedside procedure, make sure you, um, after the fact, make sure you have the appropriate PPE on. You'll have an enzymatic usually in the soil utility room. Um, you can ask someone to bring it to you or you can go to the soil utility room or ask nursing to help you um, or a tech. Um, place instruments in the soil utility room. You're going to spray those surfaces and then we need to notify SPD to come pick those up. The reason we do this is we want to keep those instruments wet because if they get dry and they have um, blood and body fluid on it, it creates a biofilm and it makes it very difficult for them to clean once they get down there. Um, the case I was talking about earlier, we sprayed everything down and it still took us three and a half hours to decontaminate um, those, those pieces of equipment. And then certain surgical procedures, you can get into thousands of instruments you wouldn't think it. Like a joint revision, I think there's 1,200 instruments we use. It's crazy. All right, so HAI prevention, we'll go through this. So what is an HAI? That is a healthcare associated infection. It, it's an infection that someone acquires in the process of receiving healthcare that they may not have come in with. So cotty prevention, word of the day, never accept a drink from a urologist. I'm just kidding. Um, so cotty associated urinary tract infection, uh, the surveillance definition, you have to have greater than 10 to the fifth of bacteria. Um, you can't have more than two organisms. So if it's a mixed growth, we don't even look at it. If it's less than 100,000, we don't look at it. Um, signs and symptoms such as uh, a fever greater than 100.4, cost of vertebral pain or suprapubic pain. Um, and then the urinary catheter is greater than two days. So fun fact, there's this thing called an infection um, prevention window or infection window um, for surveillance. And that includes the day the culture was done, three days prior, and three days after. And that's in general for all of your, um, your main um, HAIs. So let's say that you did, you had a positive urine today. And we go and we look three days back to start the window. We'll get to look three days forward if there's nothing there. So let's say you took out the Foley um, two days ago. It's already been in like six days. You took it out two days ago, you're like, I'm in the clear, this is not a cotty. Um, let's say they had a fever on the day you took that catheter out, that moves the date of infection back to that date where the catheter was there, it's still a cotty. What we don't want you to do is to um, document, this. you can document it as a UTI. I would not document it as a cotty unless you actually know it's a cotty. So for instance, and I can give you um, this for your next lecture. So once we had a degloving incident, um, you could see the catheter um, very clearly. It's going to be very hard to keep that infection away. They did get infected. Um, we knew it was not from the catheter. It was from the degloving. 
because um, they already had it in their bloodstream also. So if we would have documented it as a clotty, it's really not a clotty. It's actually being seeded from the, the wound itself. So indications for use for a catheter. Um, don't pay attention to this picture. I got it off the internet and realized it did not finish uh, saying balloon. Um, <laughs> a while ago when I was looking at it. Audrey didn't catch it this morning. Um, acute, um, so acute urinary retention or obstruction, urologic or GYN surgery. Um, we learned a long time ago in nursing that if urology puts it in, you don't touch it. Um, don't take it in. Just leave it. Let them handle it. Assist with healing a, a perennial or sacral wounds if they're hospice palliative care. Um, if they have required immobilization, so major trauma where they can't move. Um, an accurate measurement of output in the ICU setting. So for the Cotty bundle, things we look at to help prevent this. And even though I, you're not going to be documenting it, you're going to be doing it, if you see something, you can say something. Um, so things we do with the Cotty bundle is we're going to do hand hygiene. We're going to make sure that it's secured to the leg. So if you see it flopping around, you know, you can let someone know that they need to put that stat mark on. Making sure the, flat, the bag is below the bladder. The biggest thing I saw during rounds here and over at Jewish is the dependent loops. And that actually is being shown right here because a lot of folks go, what's a dependent loop? They think it's when it's looping around in a circle. But no, it's, it's when it's like that because when it does it, it can't go around. So then it just backs up and then and it goes back into the bladder. And that's how you can get um, some biofilm development. You get an infection. Um, a lot of times if you use the clips, Mickey used to be really good about this. Um, you can make it go like on the bed, like kind of around, and it makes a very good flow. <coughs> Making sure the, the seal is intact. Um, always assessing for removal. Making sure period care is being performed. And then emptying prior to transport. When they go to surgery, making sure it's not being kicked on the floor, or, you know, dropped or anything like that. Um, alternate devices are out there. We have tons of them. I know that most of you are probably seeing the PrimoFet and the PrimaFet and all the suction catheters. We have urinals and uh, female urinals and briefs and bladder scanners. and We have the whole shebang, um, straight cast, concast, um, to help us um, in lieu of using a catheter if we do have to. For urine culture collections um, and diagnostic stewardship, making sure that we're being very um, deliberate and, and testing. Um, so special cause, pregnant and pending urological surgery, kidney transplant, immunocompromised or an infant, yes, go ahead and do a urine culture if it's um, indicated. Um, do they, or if they don't have one of those and they do have signs and symptoms, then you're going to do the urinalysis with the reflex to culture. Um, otherwise, the test would not be indicated. Clabsy prevention. This is my favorite. Um, so the definition for this is bloodstream infection plus a CVC plus no other identified source of infection. Um, some things will let you be excluded, like if they have a VAD or they're on ECMO, um, or if they are manipulating their line. So if you have someone who's self-injecting through their line, please document it. That takes them out of surveillance. Also, if they have, uh, this is so sad, if they have Munchausen by proxy, if they're suffering from Munchausen by proxy, it takes them from exclusions. If they have Munchausen's, it does not. I still never got that. Um, so different ways that catheter can become contaminated through, through actual um, injection, through the site itself, or it can be seeded. Um, so indications for use were recently updated to match the compendium. I've listed all the compendiums at the end of these slide sets. 
Um, so we want to make sure that we're using them appropriately. I also provided in the slide set a list of commonly um, used central or medications that require central infusion. So like amiodarone is one of those that's vescant or has vescant-like properties. So you can usually run it through a peripheral for about 24 hours before you have to move to a central line. If you're lucky, that peripheral will hold out for 24 hours before it starts to burn up. Um, so most of these will cause um, extubations, especially if they are given peripherally. Um, certain things like vancomycin, they're not, they're considered um, vescant-like. So we'll run the, those short-term through a peripheral. Anything longer, you'll want it to go through a central. We typically will not run vancomycin through a midline because we can't see it if it extravates because it's up here in your axilla. Clip. So when, if you insert a central line or watch somebody insert a central line, they should be documented in Cerner, making sure we're doing all the right steps. Um, we don't want someone rotating around. Uh, a lot of times we pay so much attention to that central line. Um, a lines are the same. Anything that goes in the blood, we should be doing thoroughly. Maximal barriers. Central line maintenance, making sure that we're changing the dressing um, when it's due every seven days or when it's soiled. If it has a um, God's pad on it, we'll want to change it at 24. And then one thing that um, a lot of people don't re realize is that if we put a new device in, then we also need to put all new tubing in. We don't want to reuse that tubing. If you see tubing hanging up in the room and it's um, it's looped on each other, get rid of it. Um, don't let them put it back in because it's already contaminated. Um, I used to go around cutting it. <laughs> don't use it again. Um, also, I'm vascular access, so I have a, a propensity to make sure those lines are um, are saved. Also, um, for blood cultures, I know this is a big thing also, not so much on this side of the street as, as other places. Um, if there's a pending blood culture and we suspect there's a bacteremia or we know there's bacteremia, we will, we will probably work with ID and do a line holiday and we will not put a new um, central line in unless it's emergent within 24 to 48 hours to give time um, to let antimicrobials start working. Um, so for de-escalation, assess each time you see the patient. Um, for dressing integrity, if, if they need their dressing changed, let someone know. Um, also, we just initiated this down at Jewish, um, working on getting it at Mary Elizabeth in here. There's a dot phrase that you can put into your documentation. You just have to put dot and then type in CL and it'll type in CLABSI prevention. It'll pull four simple little questions over asking about the dressing and the line. Um, we also have a consult to VAS for device planning. Um, so what they'll do is they'll come, they'll assess the patient, talk to you, um, figure out their plan of care, and then they will map their veins and figure out what is the best device to use um, that's least invasive. Um, the newest thing we've changed over the last year um, is that in practice is that we prefer a single lumen pick over a port for TPN. That came from oncology. They actually came to us and said, hey, we have a concern. And so we did um, a literature search. We, we looked at different organizations. Um, if you run TPN through a port, based on the literature I read, there's a 90% chance of infection. Um, it's not when, it's, or it's not if it's gonna get infected, it's when it's gonna get infected. Um, so we prefer a pick for that now. Blood culture collection. Um, there's nothing really new with this. Making peripheral is always preferred over um, central. And then we also have T2 availability, so that'll come up faster, so we can start our antimicrobials faster. C. diff. Um, so symptoms, 
making sure they have symptoms if we're going to order, um, making sure they're having multiple bowel movements. If they haven't had a bowel movement in five days and we gave them everything under the sun, let that work through their system first before we order um, for a C-diff because we literally just, we're making them go to the bathroom at that point. <coughs> High-risk therapies um, that can result in C, that we see C-diff after, they're listed up here, all your C-drugs basically. <laughs> And then your, uh, your Cipro, your Levo, and your Moxie. Ceftriaxone and clindamycin are a big um, culprit of C. diff. Making sure we're doing a timeout for antimicrobials. We used to teach the 357 um, timeouts. So at day three, day five, and day seven, looking, making sure the cultures are there. If we don't have positive cultures, making sure we pull that back unless we're doing it prophylactically for like say um, a BMT patient or someone um, who's super immunocompromised. Are the antibiotics needed? Can we move to PO? Um, how long does the treatment need to be? Some people are still under the impression that some drugs need the 14 day. Well, actually the guidelines have moved to a seven. Um, are there drug levels that need to be done? You know. Can they leave on the IV antibiotics? If so, get that pick order in early or the midline, depending on the length of um, their um, treatment. <coughs> order restrictions. So if the patient's had a negative in the last seven days and you try to order it again, um, within seven days, it'll tell you no. If they had a positive within the last 28 days and you try to order it again, it'll tell you no, because um, we don't want to test for a cure. And then the order stops if the patient has received a laxative within 48 hours, and you'll see these C-diff alerts. Um, if you put it in as a miscellaneous order as a workaround, then micro will um, decline that order as well. And then last but not least, Pat will do that. And then we're almost done. I've never seen a chest x-ray that clear. I'm just saying. Um, so risk factors for VAP, um, everything under the sun. Yes. Can you talk about the C. diff testing we have here? Mm -hmm. If it's like, if it indicates active infection versus colonization. Right. So the way they do a three, um, they do the, first they do, uh, I'm going to say this wrong. GDH and toxin. It's the GDH and toxin. So it'll give you your first result. The toxin will come second. And then if there's a discrepancy, then they'll run the PCR after that. Okay. And then they report the final result. If you look closely, you'll see all three results, or two results typically. Um, and then that's how you would determine if the you know if the toxin's negative, and they, they may or may not be symptomatic. Then so, you know so most of the time in Cerner, all you can see is positive or negative, mm -hmm. and that's the result of basically if the first two test positive, they report it positive. Yeah. Okay. If one of them, if they're divergent, one positive, one negative, then they'll go to the PCR if that's positive. So you get the result of basically two out of three of those tests. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they try to take that away so you don't just get a PCR and say, oh, it's there, because that's more likely to be colonization. And you can call, like, if you get a positive result, you know, like my patient does not seem very symptomatic, you can still get a positive result and still be colonization. So definitely take into consideration your patient's symptoms. Hopefully if they were asymptomatic, you didn't order one anyways, because uh, that positive result can result in millions of dollars lost to the hospital and the administration gets very sassy about that. Um, and so if you ever have any questions or concerns, you can call the lab or I believe you guys can see an infection prevention if it's toxin negative. That's really what you're looking for is toxin negative or positive. The PCR as the tiebreaker can still pick up colonization. Yes. Very good. So your risk factors are listed here. Um, I remember back in the day when we were doing our VAP rounding, 
and we had our new residents reading um, the the chest X-rays, and we're like, well, what is it? And they're like, well, it could be just anything, and uh, we're like, okay. <laughs> so it made it very difficult back then, especially when people were arguing to get out of having a bath. So our VAT bundle, we look at head of bed, 30 to 45 degrees. That also includes the patient, um, not just the bed, unless it's contraindicated. Because um, you know the bed's up here and here's the patient down here. Um, sedation vacation, um, assessing for readiness to wean, spontaneous breathing trials, um, peptic ulcer disease prophylaxis, DVT prophylaxis, um, using a cuff ET tube um, with inline symbolic suctioning is also um, a good preventative measure. It's not practiced everywhere, we're still working on that. And then of course doing our oral care routinely. Resources you can use if you have questions after this or you're looking for guidelines, they're listed on these slides. Internally, there's a lot of different groups you can look at, um, especially when you go to vascular access. Um, sometimes you may order a pick and they can't do it because the vessel's too small. We put four and five inches in. It has to be a certain diameter. We can't do it. We have to chuck it over to IR. Um, IR if they have to have a tunneled line. Um, they use six French, um, so we do vein preservation as well. Um, respiratory therapy, policy tax. Um, we do have under our standard and transmission-based precautions policy and policy tech. As an attachment, there's also the isolation grid that we use, um, if you wanted to look that up. And then I'm gonna tell you a secret that you guys are gonna have to share with everybody. No, um, so when you call and you say, does this person need isolation for so, such and such organism? Nine times out of 10, I've been doing this a long time, I'm gonna know. But if I don't, I'm literally going to get on to my phone and I'm gonna hit CDC Appendix A and click the button and go scrolling. Um, that is the magic site. So it's CDC Appendix A. It'll tell you the, the type of uh, isolation and the duration of precautions. Once again, all the compendiums, if you type in Shea compendiums or IDSA compendiums, it'll take you to all of these. They just put Cotty out like a couple weeks ago, I think it was. Um, so I haven't looked at that one as deep as the other ones, but they are all here. And here is my contact info, should you have any questions. Yes. Quick question, I know this is very expensive, but how much copper did you really use as a surface? So the only place we currently use copper that I'm aware of is BMT here. Okay. Um, and it was built that way when they rebuilt the unit. Um, it's stained, really weird. Mm -hmm. um, but that is the only place I'm aware. It, it's pretty expensive. It's very expensive, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you.